0: Hi, my name's Derwin, and this is episode three of Late to Formation. It was May of two thousand and seven when I left Fort Lee. With a win, I was back on track, thankfully. And when I got to Fort Gordon, I was assigned to the 63rd Signal Battalion. I was placed in Headquarters Company, and I had gotten there right before their deployment. I think the battalion deployed a few weeks later, right? So I kind of got to meet everybody a little bit. You know, they were going to send a group of us from rear detachment as late deployers and i went through all the pre-deployment stuff i got all psyched up and ready to go and then i went home and then i said bye to my family i hugged my mom at the airport in indianapolis and then i remember flying back and then i get back to fort gordon and they're like ah we're just kidding (laughs) you're staying i was like what (laughs) are you serious and which was quite the emotional jet lag for me at the time. And so after that, I just stayed on rear detachment for the rest of 63rd's deployment, which, you know, was fine. I got my chance to go later on down the line. Just business as usual. You just went to work. Like I worked in a supply office at the time, which, you know, is about as exciting as it sounds. There was like a fence, right, surrounding my office, right? It was like a cage almost. But there were giant ceiling length wall lockers lining the cage, right, in a giant L shape. And so my desk was in that L shape, but you couldn't see my desk from the cage door or any of the outside spots at all so I could hide and I could just nap back there and no one would know I was napping until they just knock you know, they just kinda knock in the cage and shout for me and I'd wake up. But you know, it was weird attachment, so I didn't really there wasn't a whole lot to do anyway. And, you know, we went out to the field a few times. It was going out to the field in sort of the most general sense where we would go spend a couple days maybe a week in this place called tent city we would go out there and set up these tents these big long things you know they'd fit 15 20 30 people in a tent and there was this time when we were out there for a while and then the storm hit no one put stakes down on the tents it's so all of the tents just picked up and blew away <laughs> they just it was it was like it was like the first 5 minutes of the wizard of oz man it was crazy as a signal brigade it wasn't as necessary for us to rough it as much what our focus was as a brigade was setting up communications so we didn't spend weeks and months out in the field, eating bugs and learning how to sleep in trees. We know, we just kind of had a general sense of what our gear was and a general capability of using it. We go out to the rifle range once a year. I learned how to drive military vehicles there. I got my military driver's license before my civilian one, which, and I'm just sitting there just driving through the motor pool and the motor pool is where we spend a lot of our time doing maintenance on trucks. By maintenance, I mean, you turn on the key to see if it works and all that, or you, you hit the button to see if the thing turns on and go through connexes. And I remember we were doing something with some sort of chemicals or something, and there is this motor sergeant, and he goes, Okay, everybody, I want you to know these chemicals, they're dangerous. Be careful. I'm going to be in my office. If I look out my window and I see a fireball, <laughs> And I hear screaming, I don't know you. (laughs) And I never did. (laughs) And I will cry for you at your funeral. (laughs) He was actually a nice guy. But, uh, you know, he's funny. the better parts of going to big army as opposed to training was that there wasn't such a stark divide between the NCOs and the junior enlisted soldiers, right? Because in training especially in medic school the NCOs were seen as like angry vengeful gods that would go out of their way to harass you and make you miserable but At Fort Gordon, which was a more relaxed support base, right? When the system worked the best, they were your mentor. Now, there was still a difference there, right? Like, at least there was as I experienced it. Because they kind of took the place of, like, a father figure in a lot of ways. Or they would look out for you, that sort of thing. You know, but they weren't your... They weren't supposed to be your drinking buddy. They weren't really my drinking buddies, right? You know, that's what your peers were for. Now, Bucky, who was an E5, kept that level of professionalism that the local environment demanded of him, right? While in uniform. And while off uniform, he was nice enough to invite me to his hometown of Homer, Georgia. Which... You know you could just hear the dueling banjos as you drive into the uh into the town square and while i was at homer georgia with bucky and his nice family they treated me like one of bucky's friends bucky treated me like a friend i still called him sergeant most of the time out of sheer habit and it was my first experience relaxing a little bit around an nco but still like knowing This guy's still in charge. And there was this staff sergeant whose name was Tony. And Tony grew up in Georgia. And he came to the army by way of Job Corps. And much like Bucky, just a solid, dependable guy. And he adopted me in a lot of ways. He had a wife and I want to say four daughters right maybe five there's a lot of girls man (laughs) like he had a lot of there were a lot of ladies running that house so tony uh he had this dog he named rocky and he would just hang out in the back porch while all the girls were fighting in the house and hang out with his best friend rocky and drink beer and just have a good time and i ended up naming my own dog rocky In the honor of uh, Tony's dog. And he would always check up on me. He would check in with me. He would make sure I was okay. He would invite me over for dinner. right, To get me out of the barracks. Because you can get lost in a black hole. Called a barracks room. Sometimes. And Tony knew that. So he made sure to always invite me over. And always make me feel like I was part of the family. And... We kind of had a similar sense of humor and he treated me like, like a little brother, which I always appreciated and gave me a good example of what to do for when I became an NCO to always check in on people, to call people, to say, Hey, how are you? Are you doing okay? You know, how are your parents? That sort of thing. Much like the other NCOs had met up till that point. 15 years later. I was visiting Fort Gordon. Tony had retired and was living in the area. I had long since left my home base and gone out adventuring into the world. All that time, Tony stood a giant in my memories, but I never thought I'd get a chance to see him again. The stars aligned at a Waffle House in Georgia I got to tell him how I made something of myself, introduce my wife, listen to his stories all over again, and for an afternoon, I went back in time to 2007. For a moment, I was 20 years old again, and my big brother was meeting up with me for lunch. For a second, I was home. Thank you for everything, Tony. quite a bit of my time at Fort Gordon I've never been in a fraternity before but it's probably pretty similar because we'd have these big raucous barracks parties where there'd be beer pong and there'd be people from other units there and we were all just 21 22 something like that we'd mix up all these different types of alcohol and Sometimes we'd go off post together, and as a group, there'd be four or five of us. We, you know, got drinking. I'd spend my whole paycheck buying drinks for people like a dummy. And then we'd go look for our DD, and then our DD's passed out face-first drunk on the floor. (laughs) So we're like, oh, well, I guess he's not driving. And then we'd call one of the E5s that were on the base, and then we got this E5, and he picked us up. And we got through security. And then as we got to the barracks, he pulls a water bong out of the trunk of his car and tosses it into the dumpster at the barracks. And I went, Oh, maybe we should have called a cab. (laughs) And, and sometimes we would just party at the barracks and keep it simple. Like, you know, we had beer pong. We had somebody had a BB gun in the shape of an AR 15. (laughs) And so they'd run around and go, you know, they would just like, it it, it was an automatic BB gun. Right. So we just shoot a continuous stream of BBs at people and he'd run through barracks, through rooms and stuff and just like shoot people. And other people had BB guns and they'd shoot back. And it was like, like this weird laser tag paintball war, but with BB guns. And in the summers we'd have, we'd grill outside. And I was kind of the guy that organized the parties for a little while, for a brief period, I was that guy. At the time, this would have been 2007, probably going into 2008, something like a quarter of the base was continuously deployed in either Iraq or Afghanistan. And so, so much of the facilities on post were pretty empty and sparse. You go to the club on base and then you see a lot of ladies there who are like, oh, I just got divorced but really their husbands deployed and you know, you kind of like you just got to be careful who you dance with <laughs> you don't know whose wife or team, you know you just be very polite but be very careful who you dance with that's, that was kind of the general theme of but that's what the smarter people did anyway and oftentimes on the way home from that club I would walk down this really dark road to get back to my barracks And there were always these ditches lining the sides of that road. And I remember I kept thinking, don't fall in the ditch because you will spend the night there. You will fall asleep. People have slept in those ditches before and they do not look very comfortable. And I had a friend there named Frankie. And Frankie was from New York State. He was a good guy. Went to the barracks parties with me. And there was this Halloween party that Frankie convinced me to go to that was put on by the MWR, the Morale, Welfare, and Recreation organization, on post. And I remember thinking, okay, yeah, I guess we'll start there, but we'll probably end up at another Halloween party. And thinking like, oh, there'll be like, you know, three light beers maximum and... You know, there'll be like a colonel giving a speech or something horrific and I get there and there's like jello shots on tap and people are doing keg stands and I'm like, oh, well, hello, (laughs) this is amazing. And then a little while after that, uh, the brigade commander bought football tickets for everybody and we saw the Falcons play the Lions and it was like a preseason game. Right. And I bet he just had to like burn some like money or something for the unit budget, but that's fine. I had a great time. And it was, it was pretty great. You know, it was probably early 2008. And this was still close enough to 9 11 that all of the soldiers were treated as like rock stars wherever they went. Right. Because there was this massive pendulum shift where in Vietnam, uh, the soldiers were treated like garbage. And so, for so many reasons and so many different instances, I'll always be appreciative to the Vietnam generation because they gave my generation the respect that you deserve, that you earned, that makes it worth it. So, when we were at this football game, everywhere we walked around, it was like we were the Beatles. And then we were on the football field and we're unfurling this flag, and everyone's just cheering and going, Oh my God, you're amazing! And so me and Frankie are walking around in uniform. And this nice, you know, I was 21, 22. So in my head, she was an old lady. She was probably 45, you know, but I was a kid. And she looks at me, kind of looks me up and down suggestively. and says, can I get my hug on with you? And I went, um, what? (laughs) And then so she reaches in. Gives me like this sort of smooth from butt to back of my head and back hug, right? Just all up and down. She was she was getting it. And Frankie takes two steps to the left. And that son of a bitch <laughs> took a picture of it. <laughs> and, and then, you know, and at, for the rest of the day, I'm like, Ugh. And I don't think he showed it to too many people, but he told it. Everybody he goes. Hey, Lester, why don't you tell everybody about what uh, what, what what happened? And so, so yeah, <laughs> that guy. I sure do miss him. And I remember when Spice hit the scene. Spice was this drug. It's like synthetic pot that they couldn't really test for at the time. So everybody was doing Spice, and. And the dark side of living in a frat house is this, I guess, because a lot of the people that were in the service at the time were people with like prior convictions to things, right? If you had low-level convictions, they would often send you to go to war or go to jail. So a lot of those people ended up at Fort Gordon. And there was this drug called Spice, and it started getting traded around quite a bit, and people were dealing it to each other because they couldn't really test for it so they couldn't stamp it out like with their normal procedures and it was at that point where I stopped going to the parties as much there was a group of about four or five of us that we knew that there was no good ending to uh, using spice and selling spice and being involved in the people that did so we kept to ourselves as much as we could we kept to each other and when the drug started like trading and selling a bunch, things got dangerous on the base, just in the barracks. And we would all walk from barracks to barracks in groups just as like extra protection, right? It was, it became decidedly unfun after that. Then after a while, I think very quietly, the, the cops on base figured out what was going on because... A little bit at a time, things calmed down to the point where they weren't, they didn't quite feel as dangerous anymore, you know. And as my time there continued, I got further and further away from the barracks party scene. After a while, it just made more sense to keep to myself. I had this really old TV that I used to hook uh, my portable DVD player to. And I would put on mall rats, the 10th anniversary DVD and turn on the audio commentary and just listen to Kevin Smith and Ben Affleck, just talk to each other. And that's what I'd fall asleep to. And I was buying comics on a regular basis back then. And it was right around when Marvel was going through their civil war period, the comic book version, not the movie. And I would get off work and I would go down to the comic book store on base and just buy whatever's new. And then I'd go to this hot dog stand that was ran by these really nice Mennonites. And there was this girl who worked there. And we got along, we had a lot of fun. And I actually asked her on a date one time. And her two lumberjack brothers accompanied her. And so I think I spent most of my time nervously trying to make everyone laugh. And we didn't go out on a date ever again. You know, I just, I was like, "Mm, it's a little much. (laughs) I had a copy of the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe, and I would read one short story, at least I tried to, before I went to bed, because I was really into The Raven. I thought the Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven was the coolest thing, and that's mostly because I saw it on the season two of The Simpsons, the first Halloween episode where they do the Raven with Homer and Bart and all of them. And an old NCO one time came to me and said, do you want to go to work on Friday? And I was like, yes, I do. And then Tony signed me up to go to the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial site where he was buried. I believe Dr. King's wife was buried. We didn't go into the church house where he preached as a reverend, but we could you know, we saw it and they said, Hey, that's where Dr. King preached. We got to see a bit of the local culture and see things in person that I had only read in history books and saw in like PBS news hour documentaries and stuff like that. And along with that, pursuit of local culture, I joined the local theater company, right? And by joined it I mean like I worked the spotlight up in the rafters while the actors did the acting and all of that. And it was a dinner theater on post, which was pretty cool. And I got to uh, have a free meal, right? And I got to experience some culture. I got to feel that there was something more than just partying and trying to meet pretty girls. And there was a a nugget of self-expression trying to get out there. And I remember when I went home on leave, my mother and my father took me to the Indianapolis Art Museum, and I had never seen such a place before. I just remember looking at beautiful paintings and feeling a sense of of love for the work that was in front of me and for the environment that promoted art and expression and individual thinking and countercultural ideas, and, and and not even necessarily that I buy into those ideas, but the fact that those ideas exist and can exist without fear of reproachment, right? That's what an art museum was for me. And that so contrasted with my time in uniform up to that date where individuality was a dirty word. They'd say, oh, you're going to be an individual? You could do your own thing? Huh? Just do whatever you want? But at the same time, in the military... The protection of the freedom of speech was a gospel all by itself, right? Like they taught you to believe in America and its founding principles, you know, the, the first amendment, the second amendment, and all of the freedoms that are guaranteed to us by our creator. And the military serves to protect that concept, but it does not embrace that concept for its own culture. It looks at that concept with reverence as an ideal to uphold for others, not for the common soldier. And it makes sense, because the common soldier has to fit into a mold. And the common soldier's purpose is to do as they're told and do it quickly. And I understand that. But then you had this element of the art that I saw at the Indianapolis Art Museum. And I got to see the ideals That we were protecting. I got to see a world. That I only dreamed about. As a kid in the trailer park. I got to see people doing what they want. Saying what they want. And as a soldier I was indoctrinated. I was made to believe. And I did and I still do. That there's nothing. Higher. Than the ability to speak forth. Your thoughts into existence. Unfettered. And I couldn't verbalize it. At the time, I was all of 20, but I turned to my mother and I simply said, Thank you for bringing me here. Thank you. And I took that sort of broadening of my horizon back to Fort Gordon with me. And I had these notebooks, you know, like composition workbooks, right? That you get in like college classes. And I just take them everywhere, write notes down because I remembered how excited I was to have paper because having paper meant i had potential at possibilities i had i could write my thoughts down when i was a kid i remember scrounging for paper right i just remember there being a deficit of paper and me writing ideas down on any paper any scrap of paper i could find there was this little place on post called the huddle house and it was a little greasy spoon diner like a Waffle House, right? It's almost beat for beat, the same thing, just a different name. And so often I would walk down there from my barracks. It's like a 15 minute walk or 10 minute walk. It wasn't that far. And I would just sit in the huddle house and just write my notebook. And that was where I wrote the first draft of The Forever Sleep. of scott g douglas was acerbic and gruff and rough around the edges and had a bit of a mean streak to him and he just didn't really understand the world or the people in it or how general society functioned which is a direct reflection of my entire life and i i amped a lot of that up in scott g douglas and, you know, maybe it was a reflection of my feelings on conformity against individuality in the military at the time because I was feeling so out of place and out of context and kind of alone in the sea of people doing a different thing, which makes sense because that's Scott G. Douglas. Scott G. Douglas is walking around checking stasis tanks. You know, he's surrounded by people that are plugged into this whole other thing. And I felt very much the same way. I mean, I wanted to be an artist, and I was a soldier, right? And while the two can overlap, there's a lot of friction there. And there's a longing in Scott's journals throughout the piece because he feels so very much alone and out of place, and he misses that sense of community. And he misses that sense of being a part of something. And at the time, while I was a part of something, I was so recently pulled out of my initial community, right? I left the trailer park for the army. And having left the trailer park for the army, I, much like Scott, went on a path by myself while everyone back home stayed and did their own thing. They were all plugged into this whole other world Because going on leave from the army and going back to see my civilian friends and family, it was always like crossing between two parallel dimensions, right? Where the cultures are so vastly different. And while at Fort Gordon, while I had friends and those friends, much like Scott had his friends that he would link up with once a year and play beer pong and listen to Led Zeppelin and, you know, what I was longing for was family, Right, my family was back home in, in Michigan at the time. They were all living their lives. And I left. And so much of Scott's early longing for community and, and not really feeling like he clicks with the community nearby because there's kind of a symbol of the status quo in Shelby. Shelby is his symbol, his link to the status quo. And you know, she's supposed to be someone he talks to and he just, you know, berates her and just was kind of a a jerk. And at the end of the story, spoilers, kids, he falls in love with her, right? Because he didn't really mean all of that, all of that sort of mocking and berating and stuff was just kind of a mask to cover his real feelings about it. Because I think for me, in that story, she symbolizes my resenting the status quo, right, of where I was, I was felt very much alone a lot of the time, but also it was the most successful I had ever been, right? And so it's hard not to secretly love the thing that makes you a success and gives you status in the world. And in the end, he actually marries Shelby. And I think a lot of that is me not liking the conformity of it. Right, having a hard time, especially in those early first couple years, like, but finding peace with it. If I could have some semblance of control, if I could have some feeling of agency and ownership, and a bunch of words I didn't really know when I was twenty, and that's what marrying Shelby meant. It meant loving the army on my own terms. Because at the end of the story, Scott has changed the status quo to a point where he can function with it symbiotically. He changed the status quo to fit him to where he could be a part of it. Because that's what the end message of it was. The desire to be a part of it. This time I was coming back from the PX in a cab. And I was sharing a cab with this other soldier that was off duty. And they told me how that they had failed out of combat medic training. But they went through a second time and passed. And I looked at them and said, oh, it, it can be done. Like, you can do that. And he was like, yeah, you should do it too. And so. Pretty soon my reenlistment window came up and I did. I signed up for a few more years and then to go to combat medic school. And there was a going away party that we had at the bowling alley. And I think the going away party, it was really nice because there were all these new people that had cycled through and a lot of people had like kids. And one guy brought his kids and his wife and everybody. And it was just fun family affair where it wasn't all about like drinking and you know, you're scared of drug dealers. It wasn't any of that. It was just nice. And and Frankie was there. And Frankie and I were kind of there the whole time when everybody else had deployed and cycled through and transferred base and stuff like that. And then the party ended. And then we kind of went to his barracks room. And we ended up watching this basketball game. This college basketball game. I'm not that big of a sports guy. But he was. And so we watched it. And I knew I had to leave The next day right i was flying out i was all packed and everything but i said hey i'll stay until the game ends the game ended in like quadruple overtime it just kept going and we kept drinking the whole time and it kept going and i like to think you know the lord made the game go longer for me right and then he signed one of his hats he likes these like hats that were designed to point to the left and stuff and you know real like you know he's like a like a hip-hop guy and I'm not that guy at all but I you know he's a great friend so I'm like thank you so much I still have the hat to this day and then I flew out which would be a defining choice and moment in my life because while I had course corrected enough to be successful in the army to make it through training to move forward when so many people didn't move forward in training It wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't good enough. It felt like I would always regret not going back and trying again, because while I could have spent 20 years as a supply clerk and done a good job and done a job that mattered, it wouldn't have been the thing I signed up to do it. I I needed to go back and fix my failure. It burned. It was so, so deeply burning. This need to fix the failure. And then when I got to San Antonio, my second try started. And that is all for me today. I want to thank you for listening. Check back in next Monday morning at 0700. And you better be on time, or you'll be late to formation